Donald Trump will become the first ever sitting U.S. president to meet with the supreme leader of North Korea, and we won't even get to covering that today. That is how busy this week has been. The Trump economy faces an identity crisis as the job market booms, but the president threatens a major bust with steel and aluminum tariffs. Obama-era rulings on the supremacy clause threaten the liberal immigration policies that they once protected, and cable news lets Sam Nutberg go off in an insane media blitz. And that's not even the half of it. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth. This is The Political Pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us as we enter a full-on trade war with China and a flirt with war, peace, or appeasement with North Korea. You'll need it. For today's episode, we're returning to old fashions in honor of President Trump's 17th century mercantilist economic policy. It is very old fashioned. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, just a few friendly reminders. Be sure to follow us, like, or subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes, whatever you prefer. And then again, you can follow us on our Twitter accounts at TianaTheFirst or at Avery Hogarth. Find out more information about our podcast on thepoliticalpregame.com and anything else you may desire on basically any social media platform for that matter. But let's get down to the nitty gritty here. The DOJ suing California. I know there's been quite a lot in the news this week and therefore quite a lot going on and it's been difficult to understand. But basically, the Trump administration is fighting California because the state passed three laws that the federal that the federal government basically doesn't like. One limits state and local agencies' ability to share information about criminals or suspects with federal immigration officers unless they've been convicted of a serious crime. Another bars local businesses from allowing immigration and customs enforcement to examine employees' records without a court order or a subpoena. And the third gives California the right to inspect immigration detention centers within the states. Now, there's been a lot of controversy around these laws, basically with the DOJ claiming that because of the supremacy clause, federal law is the supreme law of the land, and therefore federal government should have complete autonomy over anything in regards to immigration and immigration laws. And with the state of California arguing in state sovereignty, saying that these laws are not in direct conflict with the federal legislation imposed by the Trump administration and that they are well within their state sovereign rights to be able to impose such laws. I personally find this slightly hypocritical on the Republican standpoint, and especially from Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who as former senator from the South is known for trumpeting the sovereignty of state power over federal overreach um, with his defense on numerous things in terms of um, favorability, in terms of state rights. Um, It's almost as if whenever it's politically advantageous for the Republicans and for Jeff Sessions to divert to state rights and state sovereignty in the Constitution under the 10th Amendment. Uh, They choose to do so when it plays into their political agenda, but then there's not that same consistency across the board on things that may not align with their political agenda but are within state rights to do. We've seen this with sessions on transgender rights in wanting to uh, kind of cast away the Obama-era rule stating that schools had to allow transgender children to enter the bathrooms of their political identities. He put that on the states to be able to exercise that power and decide what they deem appropriate rather rather than the federal government. And then this is seen on the opposite hand in terms of this case on immigration, but it's also been seen in terms of session stances on marijuana legislation and how that should be a federal mandate and not a state mandate. So Tiana, what's your kind of take on all of this? Well, okay, I think there are a couple of distinctions to make. I've seen lots of people on the left comparing this to um, gun laws, the difference being that gun gun rights are enumerated in the Bill of Rights, obviously, and immigration is a little bit of a different beast. I think that that's something that's been extremely complex, and the judicial precedent for how the country can set up their immigration laws. I mean, it's, it's, it's really meandered throughout history, and but if you have like this massive ruling, it's Arizona uh, v. California, and that's when I think then Governor Jan Brewer was trying to crack down on immigration, and Obama at the time was obviously trying to make it as progressive as possible, and so you know uh, obviously Arizona lost that case, and it set a judicial precedent that that it, that does enforce the supremacy clause when it comes to immigration in a way that. Um, 
for other elements of the government, like obviously a state can take on their own initiative. But in this case, it was about the idea of of the federal law being the final note. Now, my issue with California is, well, there, there are two things at play here. One, what California actively does and how like they inhibit the federal government's enforcement. I think that from a legal perspective, it seems a lot less questionable that California's own deputies and California's own law enforcement acts in a certain way, overlooks certain things, doesn't question, uh, like, if someone gets pulled over, if they don't ask to see immigration papers, if they suspect they may be an illegal immigrant, if someone's, a, you know, like I, like, I guess that, to me, seems a little bit less legally tenuous than them actually inhibiting federal ICE agents from doing their jobs. Now, the other cases, and this is something I think I've been saying about immigration for a while, I don't know how, I mean, not that this doesn't matter, obviously it matters, but the fact that you have uh, people like the murderer in the Kate Steinle case, uh, Jose Inez Garcia Zarate, he was deported, what, five times before he killed Kate Steinle? So, and this is, I know, the Trump's case for building the wall, if, if, if you can deport someone and if they can come back five times, what's even the point? But again, I think a more productive conversation would be about how do you beef up the border in ways that are actually effective. Will wall be effective? I doubt it. I, I think it has to do with empowering ICE agents at the borders to keep people out. On this, I, from yeah, so from a legal perspective, I, I think that there are just it looks like, and from from all the attorneys' analysis that I've read, what California police officers and officials do is different than how they impede. Um, federal agents. Yeah, well, my issue here with the federal government's assertion that California is in direct conflict with federal legislation is that under the 10th Amendment, states are not supposed to be an additional arm uh, or an extension of the federal government. They are allowed to, within, you know, under federal legislation, to be able to enact their own laws that may be more nuanced and Different, And they are also not, the, the, the state of California is not compelled to carry out federal tasks such as this. The state of California and the taxpayers in California are not compelled or are not required to pay for, uh, you know, these ICE agents to go around. And I think a huge misconception with this case, and I think what has been getting stirred up by the Republican side of the argument and... Um, by attorney uh, Jeff Sessions and by the DOJ is that California wants to limit ICE and it wants to almost be become an adversary to ICE and, and make it so that ICE cannot do their job. Well, that's not necessarily the case. There's been tons of raids conducted in California in which there's been hundreds of arrests made on illegal immigrants. And California is not trying to impede on any federal, I guess immigration reform or federal immigration crackdown in that regard. However, they are trying to protect their own community and serve Californians' best interests. So if you look at the laws in more depth, the first law, uh, SB 54, prohibits local law enforcement from acting as immigration agents by asking people their immigration status during routine encounters or from alerting ICE every time an undocumented person who poses no danger is released from their custody. And so this is important to Californians, and it's important to maintaining cohesiveness in the community on the basis of public trust. California lawmakers are basically concerned that if people fear all encounters, encounters with law enforcement the same way uh, many people in the African-American community have become very alienated from law enforcement, that people will just eventually stop reporting crimes and serving as witnesses because they'll be fearful of coming forward to help with the... I guess, criminal process for fear of themselves being exposed. And that's not what you want within communities. And so I understand it from the California legal perspective. And another thing that I would like to add is I know that there's this Obama-era case in Arizona that took place in 2010. And with these laws in California being written after that case, it was written with that precedent in mind that was from that 2010 case. So I think California is well within the legal framework here. Now, <clears throat> it's... Okay, so there... There are, again, like, as with all of these things, there are two sides to every coin. So, 
yes, I, I, I think that from a political perspective, I mean, I've always been in favor of people who are here, who are here through no fault of their own, as long as they're contributing to the American experiment, should be allowed to stay here, throw out all the bad guys. So I do think that it's, I, there, I believe that there can be political nuance. The issue here is purely legal, and that's something that I think, again, is a lot more tenuous. Um, with regards to the point you made about people not reporting things, I remember after Trump won, LAPD came out and they said that uh, domestic violence and sexual assault um, cases brought to their attention fell by something like 50%, which is obviously incredibly problematic because the insinuation being that undocumented women stopped reporting these crimes, which is obviously horrific um, with like because of the fear of being deported. Now, again, I know that everything with, with DACA fell through, and it seems unclear or even unlikely at this point that that a deal that a good deal is going to be made. But if but this the debate has become so polarized between someone like Sessions, who kind of wants to deport everyone, even the quote unquote good guys, and then you have places like California that impede the deportation of even the bad guys. I mean, even it looks there are conflicting reports because California is such a big state, but it looks like there are certain jurisdictions in which even if someone is arrested on a felony, they aren't deported. They aren't reporting this to ICE, which they should obviously be doing. If someone gets arrested for a federal offense, obvious, and they are an illegal immigrant, obviously they should be deported. So the key exception to SB 54 is when the person has a record of violent crimes that is reported to ICE agents. Basically, the only thing that this stops is... It means that local law enforcement officials who are not trained in the nuances of immigration law are not required to carry out the federal immigration law, which personally I think is right. I think local law enforcement should be doing just that, local law enforcement. They should be helping keep the communities safe, increasing community cohesiveness and trust between community members and law enforcement, which is at a notoriously record high right now, and that if you think the police officer down the street who's just supposed to protect you, is not supposed to know your immigration status, is therefore your adversary and enemy, that's only going to increase criminal conduct that goes unreported in neighborhoods, which is not needed. And so I think basically all this law does is tells the federal government, hey, whatever you want to do with your ICE agents, that's fine. But us at the state government and our state officials that are being paid with our state tax dollars we're not going to be funding that. I mean, yourself as a libertarian, your tax dollars, do you want that going to federal illegal immigration deportation policies, That the, your tax dollars that you're paying in California as a California taxpayer, is, or do you want that to go to the community? But is this not just compliance? This is just complying with immigration law if, 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 if local law enforcement reports to ICE. It's neither compliance nor non-compliance. Because it's it's it's, it's, it's choosing to stay, it's honestly choosing to stay out of it. So it's nullifying federal law, then you know, and that and that I think is the era that's constitutionally tenuous, which is why Trump, which is why Trump and Congress need to pass a deal to figure out what we do with all these people who are here, because because this is just not. But I, mean, I don't think the solution is suing the state of California, which is only diverting attention from the real overarching issue. But okay, for exercising California's legal state rights. I mean, you you look know, at the, the comments from a lot of legal scholars on this, and they think that the case is going to be ruled in California's I mean, favor. I think it's conflicting at best, because the fact is, Obama made the bed, and now the state of California is lying in it. You know, the, the fact that he he's sort of ignored this, this precedent of federalism, this idea that different states can have different levels of aggressiveness or non-aggression with regards to immigration— that he decided that that was the war that he wanted to wage against Arizona. Now, to me, seems as though it does sort of cleanly pave the way for for this to be ruled against California's favor. I, I, I'm I'm hard pressed to believe that even after reading a couple of, I mean, obviously I am not a legal expert, so I'm trying to like assess all of the analysis I've read. But it seems that, uh, I mean. I think that the person who wrote the opinion was Justice Kennedy, and he makes it incredibly clear that it's a matter of, is the state nullifying federal doctrine? And in the case of Arizona, he said yes. And if you're looking at the fact that both Arizona and California are about contradicting or nullifying federal law and going forward with like their own action 
And that since in Arizona, it was ruled that Arizona was wrong. I don't see why why the ruling wouldn't be the same in California. And again, I'm not saying that that's good. But the thing is, Sessions is from a from a legal perspective is correct in waging this lawsuit. Do I think it's do I think it's it's politically what I would want? Not necessarily. But maybe if this can be used to put pressure on Democrats in Congress to be willing to make a compromise to make sure the people who are here illegally through no fault of their own can stay here without fear of later like legal burden. And again, this is what you repeatedly see with what the Obama administration did. They had, I mean, I'm not going to call them good intentions, but but because Obama was willing to take so many shortcuts with executive orders with something like DACA that required that or not required, but basically asked undocumented dreamers um, to register with the federal government, now Trump is a full registry of everyone who's in DACA. So, I mean, in, in, in attempting to protect DACA recipients, Trump made, Obama made them extremely vulnerable to if a Republican came into office after him. And I get that a little bit of that was hubris, thinking that Hillary Clinton was just going to be coordinated like the next president. But really, the only thing that will last, the only thing that will actually protect, protect the dreamers, protect people, I mean... A, a, a congressional bill needs to pass. Well, but that's why I think by Obama making these people registered, which was a completely in good faith piece of legislation, that that is precisely the reason why it should not have been struck down the way it was by Obama Republicans. Had, Obama had Obama had super majorities in both houses of Congress for what two years? Why didn't they pass DACA then? Constitutionally. DACA could have been passed, and every single dreamer could have been legalized right now. But at the same time, why would Republicans repeal that leg- or repeal that legislation or basically make it so that dreamers were not protected when knowing, like, in terms of a moral argument, like, knowing when these people came forward in completely good faith and, and completely trusting of the federal government, and then you are going to take... The information that you got because you gained their trust and completely reverse because it. Because it's not constitutional. Then, the president does not have that authority. The president does not have that authority. Trump is right to repeal that authority. And he would be wrong to not move forward and on a bill that protects people who are contributing to the American economy. So I, so, so I think Trump is correct in doing this. Congress needs to come to the table and pass a bill to protect the dreamers, in my opinion. And again, everyone can have different opinions on immigration. But I think that if you're here and if you love this country, I would rather have I'd rather have but the a dream, dreamer the dreamers who loves this country. The dreamers than were American protected. So why why take that away and then they, put them in this holding pattern because of losing status? Because it was a fake protect it was always a farce. It was never real protection. But anything keep, keep that defies the, keep the Constitution. The protection, keep the protection until you can create a new bill. But then he needed to have an incentive to create a bill. It's honestly, it's the same way where Republicans in the Trump administration were advocating for um, the repeal on health care, repeal and replace, repeal and replace on health care. And the thing is, they got it repealed, and then they had nothing to replace it with. So it's this about is, running. It's about running to the house, trying to get something repealed, and then having nothing to put on the table. Th- it's bad politics. It's bad for the efficiency th- of government. This is different. This is different. Okay, so healthcare is a lot more complicated a beast because you're combining economics, public policy, health policy. There's so many elements at play. But that's what okay, Republicans campaigned on. You don't have a bill ready to go. I, I agree. I agree. I agree. Believe me, I was livid. I the was campaign living. was far more about the repeal and replace of Obamacare the, across the board yeah. from the Republican Party, the Republican I Party agree. that has numerous assets, numerous people who can write legislation and form a, gr- a good bill, a great bill even. It was far more about the repeal and replacement of Obamacare than it was about DACA. I'm not, I, okay. So wait, 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 you okay. get that well, repealed okay. and then first you off, have nothing to put on the table. First it's off, embarrassing. First off, I fully agree with regards to the Republican problems. It's why I always, whenever people ask, oh, in like a perfect Republican world, like what senator has the best immigration or has the best uh, Obamacare replacement plan? I say none of them, save for maybe Ted Cruz, go read Ovacroy or go read Philip Klein's book, Overcoming Obamacare. Those present far better plans than anything that was brought to the table when when Republicans failed to repeal and replace Obamacare over the summer. That being said, I'm glad the individual mandate was repealed with the tax bill. But in Donald Trump winning the primary, it showed that Republicans clearly have different priorities than I do. 
I care so much more about Obamacare than I do about deporting millions of people living in this country. But clearly, the fact that Trump won the primary says something. Immigration was a resonant issue with a lot of this country, far more than far more than a represented in the media. Trump knows this. Trump knows that he has to deliver something to his base. If that means deport all the bad guys, make a deal with Congress, especially the Democrats, that protects DACA recipients and deports everyone who's criminal, rapist, murderer, you know, all the words that he used, then then at least then he's delivering something to his base. And that still won't be enough for the Who, cares, who cares about his base at this time? He's not running for re-election that's, at the moment. That's his, I mean, but, but that's his electoral mandate. His electoral mandate right now is, is, is in part his base. And so... And basically and going so, after liberal California, though, is red meat to his already dwindling base. And the thing is, this Sessions lawsuit basically offers no solution on immigration, only more no, no, o- no. only more divisive political posturing. But, but, but do you think the Democrats are going to be a little bit more incentivized to come to the table and agree? Okay, and so, so, so when you consider how complex health care is versus immigration, it's kind there's of simple. There's nothing what, to what agree was being, upon what was right being, now. What, okay, no, what was, all right, so... Are you telling me? I mean, I think that we had a very amicable kind of almost agreement or a lot of at least overlap when we were discussing immigration right a month ago. Would you not support a bill that legalizes every DACA recipient, every dreamer who is not committed, who is, who is, who is currently either employed, in school, in the military, and is not committed to any crime? That's not that, on the table then, right now. But it was. But I, but, but, but I mean, this roughly, the, Trump was willing to, Trump was willing to legalize Grant citizenship, not even amnesty, but citizenship to what one point eight million? Yeah, but in exchange for an absolute absolute feudal wall. And and you guys wouldn't want to spend the twenty five billion or whatever on the wall. Not when we're already in huge deficit because of the tax. I'm so glad the Democrats now care about deficits. Okay, now let's talk about Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, which are now which are the pretty much the fastest growing part of our non discretionary budget. So if you look at medic, okay, so right now. When our parents were children, so around, I think it was uh, 1968, there were, I, it's, seven or eight workers for every one Social Security recipient. Right now, it is three workers for every one Social Security recipient. In uh, By 2035, there will be two workers for every one Social Security recipient. So if we want to have a conversation about deficits, let's talk about Social Security. If we want to have a conversation about No deficits, doubt. Let's reform let's, it. Republicans with the majority in the House and Senate, reform it then. I mean, but we need 60 votes to pass that. Right now, we have 51 in the Senate because this is no... This okay, wouldn't pass through where are, the bill, where are the bills on the table for that right now? Because Democrats won't... Democrats will not touch Social Security. Bernie Sanders ran on expanding it. They will not do anything to limit Social Security or to at least try and reform it. So, so, so from your argument, though, that you care more about, obviously, medical, like, you care more about the medical side of things than you do about immigration, shouldn't all Americans and shouldn't the Trump administration honestly be focusing on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, things that affect every single person in this country yes, and the entire economy they, they, and the deficit versus, honestly, illegal immigration okay. that really, like, in, in the grand scheme of things, does not have nearly the gravity or the weight of effect that all of those other social programs have. Okay, well, I'll say two things about that. One, yes, and that's why I think I will all obviously, like, submit a dissenting vo- voice within the right explaining why it is so much more important to look at like, what sort of welfare state are we building rather than who are the people here as long as they're not committing any crimes? Um, but, but as a second point, we just because that's the way it should be doesn't mean that's the way it is. And the fact is there's a significant portion of this country that views illegal immigration and specifically the fungibility of our border as a massive problem. And for that reason, and because, I mean, if Democrats want to want to kill whatever blue wave or blue tide by becoming in 2018, they cannot come to the table with any sort of DACA solution. But right now, that's what needs to happen. And if anything, Sessions is within his legal rights to be doing this. And I'm hoping that this will, that this will, that this will enable, or this will at least push Nancy Pelosi to be willing to compromise on ending chain migration and replacing it with, with a more meritocratic immigration system there's no doubt i hope both sides are willing to come to the table with something that gives something to both parties and is agreed upon and not just this partisan adversarial like warfare but what i will say in regards to americans becoming more increasingly concerned about immigration potentially over these larger issues when you actually look at it for affecting their daily lives 
I will say that they've probably been made to care about this more given the rhetoric of the Trump campaign in that his campaign and his current rhetoric in office highlighted immigration and scapegoated immigration and it illegal did, immigrants. Here's the power of narrative to inflate a problem that I think is probably less significant than But, but than the same portrayed. way that highlighted an immigration problem that probably a lot of Americans didn't even realize really was so <laughs> pervasive and existed, the same way he did that, he can do that and highlight issues that actually make more sense that Republicans have been trying to get reform on for decades. He can highlight that and use it to his political advantage. He has... Trump's great capability is his ability to rally his base and get his base behind the issues that he cares about. And so he can do that in regards to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, but he's choosing not to. He's choosing to scapegoat the country's issues on illegal immigrants. I, I mean, I've always and agreed. I think it's, I never I think it's a supported, waste of time. I mean, I, I, throughout the campaign, I consistently condemned the rhetoric Trump used. I consistently condemned how much he inflated the problem of immigration when compared to something as, as pressing as a social security time bomb, as pressing as Obamacare death spirals. But the fact is that he has an electoral mandate. This is what he ran on, and he became the president of the United States. So obviously there's a certain expectation that this will be handled. Now, as it comes back down to the issue, just because I think it's important just to cement what this is really about. This is, I don't think, I mean, we could have a separate debate on whether or not Arizona v. Cal- or v. United States was, was a good ruling. I would say it's questionable at best. I probably favor more Scalia's reasoning, um, which adopted a less, uh, a less uh, territory or anti-territorial view of, of, of uh, federalism. Um, but this is about, does Sessions' lawsuit does it fall in line with California or does it fall in line with Arizona with Arizona v. United States? And to me, it seems as though it does, and 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 that's and that's what this issue comes down to. And you can argue that that the former was a bad ruling, and I think that it probably was, but that's the way judicial precedent works. The difference, though, between what California is doing and what Arizona did, Arizona's laws were almost in direct conflict with federal legislation. However. The important nuanced difference with California is just California is trying to ensure that their re- their personal state resources that they get from their state tax dollars are not being used to further federal aims. And that's an important distinction. That's what makes this California case distinctly and importantly different than the Arizona case in terms in, in, in California's favor, in my opinion. Okay, so there you have it. And I think we should move on to something much sexier. And I'm talking Steel about... Steel and aluminum tariffs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so so I, we, we discussed this at length last week, and it was about... Um, so President Trump is passing 25% tariff on steel, 10% ta- tariff on aluminum, both for just uh, imports into the United States. So Trump has doubled down on this. He, ironically, for how much President Trump ripped on NAFTA during the election, um, it's, it's funny that Trump is accepting is exempting Mexico and Canada from the tariffs. So, um, I think that's to hopefully make both sides a little more amicable going into NAFTA talks and discussion, which have already been on the table for many, many months. But but also just, like, insane. This whole thing is ridiculous. Trump's literally trying to adopt 17th century mercantilist policy. Okay, so just for some stats, for some things that actually matter. So the top three import sources of steel are Canada, Brazil, South Korea. China doesn't even crack crack the top 10. And imports from China fell 5% from 2016 to 2017. Not surprisingly. Chinese imports make up 3% of all of steel imports coming into the United States. 70% of the steel purchased in America was made in America. If you want America first, we already have it. Now, America. So why are we doing okay, this? So, I mean, we'll get to that in a second. But 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 I th- but I think it's important to remember. So it doesn't. So China is so Trump's Trump's justification for this is invoking Section two thirty two of the Trade Expansion Act. I, I believe it's Trade Expansion Act. Section two thirty two, and what it requires is Secretary Wilbur Ross to confirm that that what other countries are doing are a threat to our national security when it comes to these imports. So his argument being. China is using, uh, is manipulating WTO policies and the fact that they don't have a free market, they pretty much, when it comes to steel, have a centralized market. And they're doing that in order to produce close to 50% of the world's, it's something like 59.1 or something, I think it's, oh no, it's 59.2% of the world's steel. Um, 
So his argument is that because he's doing that, it's a threat to our national security, mainly because so many things that our national security requires involve steel, fighter jets, whatever, but then also the fact that they're manipulating currency. Yeah, okay, China also technically manipulates their own currency and hasn't that hasn't changed the fact they've had, what, two major recessions in the last decade? It's not as though China's about to beat us in all fronts. So this has to do, in order to understand President Trump's economics, you need to understand President Trump as a person. This Which, is someone who really does. This is, I mean, he is an enigma wrapped in a McRib, wrapped in lots of money, wrapped in Trump Tower. So um, Trump, so Trump's vision of the American economy is a lot closer to the 1950s than it is to 2018. When you think about the distribution of jobs that use aluminum, that use steel, that use solar panels, which is something that he also tariffed, which is something that we talked about at length. So it's the U.S. um, It's okay. So there are basically two major consulting firms that have come. So all the, um, a lot of the trade organizations, when you look at like uh, R Street, um, Cato have all come out against this. But um, Bernard Baumol tells CNN, he's the chief economist at the Economic Outlook Group, he, he estimates that the United States will lose uh, 25,000 jobs. And then uh, Jorge Vasquez, a managing director at Harbor Aluminum, who's he's been previously been used as a source for the Commerce Department, estimates that the aluminum tariff will result in 90,000 lost jobs. Which is ironic because Trump thinks that this is only boosting American jobs. Well, and here's why. Because Trump doesn't understand that that a service economy is not a bad thing in the sense that yeah, you have X amount of jobs that Which make steel. Which is funny, steel. he of all people in the hotel industry does right? not understand right. He, that. He, right, he doesn't. Okay. I mean, like, I mean, even if you think about the fact that how Donald Trump himself became Donald Trump wasn't just through buildings. Yeah, buildings are part of it, but it was really more about his ability to brand, his ability to build a service industry. So Trump, Trump thinks of it as, I'm bringing back the steel production jobs. He is forgetting how many thousands of American industries are reliant on using steel and using aluminum and purchasing them as capital goods. And, um, I mean, even, like, we talked about this last week, uh, Anheuser-Busch, they came out against this because, because obviously, if you like a cold beer, if you crack open a can, that's aluminum. And if you tariff aluminum imports 10%, not only are those, not only is that aluminum more expensive, but because you're depleting the market of supply, it means the price will go up because the demand will still be there. And um, it's, so, I mean, in short, it's basically Trump not understanding that it is far more important to make capital goods cheaper for other sectors of the economy than it is just for the straight production of these goods. I mean, if China has a comparative advantage, if they're acquiring it by by hurting their own people and by hurting their own markets, just that way they can export a bunch of steel and aluminum, I mean, primarily steel, then they can do that because we can do everything else cheaper. I mean, there's a reason why our tech sector is booming, and there's a reason why our intellectual property is booming and why our service is booming, and it's because we have all these capital goods that are cheap and make it easy for us to start new enterprises. And given all the economic progress, this is a risky move. Trump's economy, especially under the tax bill, has been absolutely booming. In February alone, uh, 313,000 job, new jobs are created. Labor force participation rate, which is, or labor force participation, which is far more important than the employment rate, uh, soared by almost a million workers. It's the single largest month jump in over 15 years. And he would jeopardize it for his unbelievably irresponsible tariffs. Well, he's, the problem is he's not even listening to his own advisors because we all know, even if you want to take economists who are, you know, Historically Republican, no, it seems as though no, absolutely no one is advocating for this. Reagan would be rolling which, in his grave. Which makes no sense, but this is both upsetting and infuriating to me on three fronts. One, I touched on this last podcast, but one is from the side of the tax incentives, the incentives that companies were given as a result of the tax cut. Does this now, with making things almost harder for businesses from a service-based economy and everything else, and making things potentially more expensive, does this take away from the incentive that companies had as a result of the tax cuts to kick back to their workers. And in fact, it might. I mean, with the loss of 25,000 estimated jobs from some economists, that is a big hit. The next is 
the longevity of these jobs that Trump is trying to push for. And again, I know that obviously there's people who actually might even think that it will have the opposite effect of what Trump intends in that there will actually be a loss in jobs. But with Trump imposing these tariffs, his goal in mind is to produce more steel and aluminum working jobs in which is that where America is moving toward, you know, four years from now, eight years from now, when the next administration rolls in, or even 30 years from now. And this goes back to a fundamental issue with politicians coming into office in America in that they have a 30-second plan and they don't have a 30-year plan. And that is an issue because that doesn't have the American people's best interests in mind. So the 30-second plan for Trump is, oh, this is going to play great to my working class base. It's going to seem like I want jobs back in this country. But then what happens, even if jobs are bolstered from this, um, these tariffs, what happens when the next administration comes in three years from now or the next administration comes in seven years from now of Trump last two terms and is completely not in favor of these policies? And it's not about if the next person who comes in is a Republican. It's not about if they're a Democrat. It's about being smart and understanding where the world is moving and where the U.S. is moving in particular. The U.S. is moving away from being an industrial country to more of a skilled country in terms of a workforce, and it has been for the last several decades. And so you look at Trump's policies trying to persuade people to enter the job market of the steel and aluminum industries and the coal industries. And honestly, I feel worried for these people because all of these people putting all their eggs into this basket in their jobs, what happens when a new administration comes in and doesn't have that same vision for America as most people don't, and policies are made that detract from these jobs? These people will then have spent four plus years of the Trump administration working as a steelworker, working as a coal miner, or even eight years, to only have inevitable job loss after the administration comes out of office. When, during this time, they could have not been wasting their time, they could have been pushed into more skilled labor, could have been pushed into labor for renewable sources of energy and other innovative ideas, and had a career with far more longevity and actually had more skills along with it to boot. And that is something that is extremely frustrating for me to look at. Uh, The last is also the the effect on the environment. I mean, obviously steel and aluminum industry is not the best for the environment and the U.S. as a country that already disproportionately adversely affects the environment compared to a lot of other countries. Is that the direction we should be going in? Potentially not. And then you look at Trump's policies with the coal industry. I mean, something that went extremely underreported in February was that Trump killed a rule restricting coal companies from dumping waste into streams, particularly in West Virginia, obviously coal mining country. And why this is already so bad, and I mean, obviously I get very passionate about this issue. I actually wrote a very extensive research paper about this uh, last year about safe water drinking rights in America, where in America, 19 million Americans do not have access to safe drinking water. A country that considers itself a first world country, over half, 19 million Americans, that's over half the population of Canada alone, does not have access to safe drinking water. And so now when you cut an Obama-era legislation that restricted coal companies from dumping their toxic waste into the streams of West Virginia, this only exacerbates the already existing issue. I mean, some of the statistics that I pulled from my research paper was that 350 facilities in Virginia violated the Clean Water Act from 2006 to 2009. And there was even a case study done in a small community outside of Charleston in West Virginia and basically there, a survey was conducted to determine these ad- the adverse health effects that were had on the residents that consumed water contaminated by a local coal mine. And it found that 30% of the community's residents had undergone gallbladder removal surgery, and half of the re- residents of this community reported chronic stomach problems and tooth decay as a result. If you're looking out for Americans, health has to be paramount and job longevity and job security has to be paramount and that seems like trump's economic policy is actually not holding any of those in a high regard or high standard and that's what i really take issue with i mean before we digress too far i mean i think obvious like i I think i think the the most illustrative principle about his about his coal policy 
beyond just like the obvious, the obvious human and environmental ramifications is more just this fact that Trump has this vision, this 1950s vision he cannot get out of. I mean, if Trump really wanted to do something radical, he could embrace nuclear policy. But um, but but with regards to your 30-second strategy point, this is a good 15-second strategy point. For the first time since Trump's god-awful summer with the Mueller appointment, with revelations of the Don Jr. meeting, Trump has rebounded for the first time to have... Um, to at least have... like So when you look at his 538 summation of his approval ratings... He's finally back at over 40%, which is somewhere that he basically needs to be in order to see election, re-election viability. So, so just to choose this to jeopardize it when no one is pushing for it. Again, Congress needs to find their stones and, and prevent this from happening. They've already abdicated too much of their authority when it comes to tariffs, even though the Constitution explicitly grants them the power to tariff um, and levy taxes. They need to take it back from the president. I hope that, that I hope that everyone comes out as hard against this as uh, like Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska has been, um, and I think even Paul Ryan is showing a little bit of stomach in the face of this. And I hope that he continues to do so because these will be disastrous. This is awful. The, the, I, 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 there's just no way this ends well. This doesn't end well for President Trump. This doesn't end well for the American people. This does not end well for the for the very few jobs that he'll be able to reclaim empower these people to work and steal and then as you described inevitably these jobs will time out because it, the fact is that 70 percent of our manufacturing jobs have not been loose have not been lost to bad trade deals they've been lost to automation so um so so i am not happy now um shall we <laughs> shall we talk about another thing and that thing being did you guys watch cable news this week did you guys see sam nunberg lose his freaking mind well we did so Sam Nunberg, he is an early era, or not early era in the ski, in the grand scope of the entire Trump lifespan, but he has been an associate of Donald Trump's uh, predating the campaign. Most notably was uh, the one who accompanied McKay Coppins on his famous 48-hour joyride uh, for Trump's fake presidential campaign that later became a real presidential campaign. Um, Nunberg is a total weirdo. Just, I'm like, I don't know exactly how else to describe this. Um, so, basically, he considers Roger Stone, the Nixonian crackpot, his main mentor, his main political mentor. And Sam Nunberg has been implicated in the Mueller investigation, and Mueller issued a subpoena for him. And this is, in, so this is where it gets weird. Nunberg went on cable news and dared Mueller to arrest him because he said that he wasn't going to comply with the subpoena because he said going through all of his emails would take up too much time. He's, he proclaims that he is not guilty. Um, he proclaims that he has nothing to hide. He just says that he doesn't want to be bothered going through his email. Now, this raises a number of things about the Trump administration. It raises the fact that Trump shouldn't have made himself such easy prey to uh, Russian intervention in the sense that, you know, the Russians tried to make repeated contact with with Trump associates, and still no smoking gun to prove that Trump himself had expressed willingness to collude with the Russians. Right now, at best, all we have is is communications and back channels attempted by the Russians. Again, the the evidence that they were reciprocated by by higher level Trump associates are limited at best. But the fact is, because it was a wheelhouse freak show of just these wildly irresponsible people in the early days of the campaign while you had people like Rubio and like Cruz monopolizing the more important political capital, then you are left with 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 the fact that someone like Sam Nunberg is is implicated in this investigation. So I think it's fully possible that Nunberg is not guilty at all. That being said, it's insane to go on on cable news primetime and dare Robert Mueller to arrest you. I mean, it, it, it got really weird. He, he, when he called, so it started off, I think he called into Jake Tapper first. Um, or no, he called into Katie Tier first and then Jake Tapper. And he's actually asking Jake Tapper for advice while he's calling in. Um, and, and I think the thing that we sort of want to focus on a little more today is less, less these early calls, because it's one thing for some high level, for some, not high level, but for some person who was just subpoenaed by the special counsel. Um, that's obviously like a big deal. But then it got more questionable because rumors and reports, especially from Lachlan Marquet at the Daily Beast, emerged that, that friends of Nunberg's were concerned that he was heavily intoxicated and because apparently has an alcoholism problem, 
And it went so far as CNN anchor Aaron Burnett, who was his final primetime stop, I believe, said that she smelled alcohol in his breath. And at what point does the media have a responsibility to not put a crazy person on TV for no reason? Well, even all of that aside, basically what... So, take aside the fact that he was kind of had this outlandish comment saying that he dares Robert Mueller to, like, invest... to jail him or whatever it may be. But he was also spewing claims about Donald Trump that had no merit or credibility to them whatsoever. Yeah. So his like quote on CNN was, they know something on Donald Trump. I don't know what it is. And perhaps I'm wrong, but he did something. Now, <laughs> why as any news company, are you having someone on the air that is just going to spew rumors and unsubstantiated claims. And so I wouldn't have an issue with it if it was a former Trump aide or a former person in the Trump administration who came on the show and said, it is my estimate and educated opinion that Trump does have some a specific damning tied to the Russian administration that I have, you know, just provided an affidavit to Robert Mueller with. Um, explaining my intelligence and what I know on Trump. That's fine. And if, if he is legally unable to tell the audience, that's, I, in my opinion, that's fine to have him on the show and to say that in an educated and civil manner. But to spew around these unsubstantiated rumors, and myself as a Democrat too, like, I think the left probably goes nuts for this because, of course, they want to see Trump out of office. And sure, like, maybe... Democrats want to see him out of office. Maybe I, in a perfect world, would like there to be another person as sitting president right now. But at the same time, I also wish that the media would have, would take a little more care, especially in times like this when I want the media to be able to be trusted by the public. And I think there's a lot of great things that the media has been doing and a lot of great reporting with great checks on sources and everything else that obviously they don't get credit for because you don't really get credit when you do something well. You, do, you get vilified when you do something wrong. And this just goes to discredit anything the media has been doing to build up their already awful reputation as a result of you know Trump's presidency. And so when they do this and they have someone on spewing unsubstantiated rumors, that's extremely troublesome. And of course, obviously the incentive for the media to have a crazy person like Sam Nunberg on is the fact of they're obviously going to get more views. People are going to be talking about this. It's clickbait, whatever you want to call it. But what benefit does that serve to the longevity of CNN and all of these other places that have decided to have this guy on? What benefit does that serve to the integrity of these news companies moving forward versus this intermittent you know, gain of viewers? I think it's much more important to have trust and integrity and when you're looking at a longevity perspective rather than clickbait on one certain event and article, which is going to be in someone's ear for this news cycle this week and out of everyone's ears next week. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, again, I think it's important to differentiate between, you know, you, Jake Tapper and Katie Turr, where a number of just called in, and obviously it is a newsworthy event to someone to receive a subpoena from the, from the special counsel. So I, I would argue that, that, that Tapper and Turr were well within their rights to keep him on the air for as long as they did because he wasn't in person. They didn't know he was drunk. And, like, from the beginning, I guess, it seems like it was newsworthy. But at what point, and the later anchors, you know, someone like Aaron Burnett, who, again, on air, is discrediting her source, what, at what point are you abdicating your journalistic responsibility? And, and again, it's not that nothing that Numberg said, by default, had any journalistic value. If they wanted to talk to him and figure out whether or not what he was giving was credible information, that's important. But you would never run a piece in print... You, you never had a piece in print about about a person, like not using someone's commentary, but about a person if you thought the information they were giving you was was flawed or impaired by mental illness or by or by severe alcoholism. So why would you put it on air unless if your only goal is to get views? And it, like, I, it, I, to me, it just it, it was a little bit. It was it went from being funny to being extremely sad to being extremely uncomfortable. And I, I want to give credit to uh, to everyone who did call this out. I know that Brian Stelter questioned, this is an ethical debate. If your source seems drunk or drugged or just plain out of his mind, what is your responsibility? You have Axios' Jim Van Hay and Mike Allen who came out against this. Um, 
move like pretty categorically in very harsh terms. They called it our entire, they said in their title, our, or not in their title, but they said in their piece, our entire industry lit itself on fire because of a troubled Trump hanger on made of ass of himself live. And that's, that's a pretty harsh assessment, but I, but I do think it's important to raise that question of, and again, we don't know because again, McKay Coppins theory is that this was all just a stunt and that Nunberg wanted just to basically entertain and dominate the news. And if that's the case, that's, there's a different level of responsibility that the media had. But, but Trump derangement syndrome, as much as I hate that term, <laughs> it, it unfortunately continually proves itself to be a thing at times. Well, what's frustrating about this, too, is having someone on a character such as Sam Nunberg, it only serves to stir the pot and further polarize the American public. And it almost just does... Just to empower them just to call anything they don't like fake news. Yeah, and, and it almost does these more left-wing news outlets and media outlets a disservice by having someone like this on the show because it leaves themselves susceptible to right-wing sources like Fox News or like the Daily Wire or anything it may be to be able to call them out and discredit them and call them fake news to put themselves on a higher pedestal. And I think an issue that arises from that is that since there are more notable left-wing news sources, of course the right-wing news companies are looking towards them and are looking to attack them for their journalistic integrity um, wherever it may be. And so this only serves to further discredit them. And, and it serves to further alienate the right from the left. And, and bless I'm you. So sorry. I'm sorry. I tried to stop that. And, and, to further, <laughs> and to further kind of stir up this political polarization when really media commentators on the left and news outlets on the left should be looking to form cohesiveness and should be looking to reach across and get moderates on their side. And this doesn't help anyone. It really doesn't. And it only serves to further, I guess, legitimizing the claims that they are fake news. And no one wants that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that pretty much sums it up. And, I, and, and, and I'm glad that you're the one saying that, not me, because obviously I can say the media needs to stop discrediting itself, and I can say that nine million times, and I'll just be accused of being a Trump show. But I, I think the fact that there was some sort of, there was especially you know you have you have Axios's founders who are not I, I've met them they're not right wing but they're very cognizant about the fact that that the media needs to regain its credibility and I really respect that about them. Um, I, I like there there should be a bipartisan consensus on. The media needs to do its job and keep its credibility, especially when you have a president like Trump who is so keen to attack the press. And shooting themselves in the foot does them no favors. Yeah, and I think they need to even take further care on that measure now because any mistake they make is increased tenfold by exactly what you said, the Trump administration calling it out immediately. Rather than in the past, you know, some things you could get away with. They know what the political arena is right now. They know what the rhetoric is. So play the game and adhere to the new standard that has been set. On that note, however, let's get on with our Friday evenings. Um, as always, you guys can follow us on social media at Tiana the First, at Avery Hogarth. Again, our website, thepoliticalpregame.com. And then be sure to uh, leave us any comments on SoundCloud or iTunes, like and subscribe. That's really what keeps this going. So if you like what we're doing, please toss us a follow or subscription, share this podcast with your friends, and we just really appreciate it. So thank you guys so much and take care.